This year, move the dirt and make an impact by signing up for Power Athlete Program to crush your goals. Join our tens of thousands of athletes around the globe already empowering their performance as power athletes. For less than a dollar a day, get our world-class coaching delivered straight to the palm of your hand. Our programming is performance-driven and goal-oriented. Finally tuned through my first-hand experience playing the NFL and subsequent decade-long coaching and collaborating with some of the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. As a special time offer for the month of January, Hey Upfront for a full year of training will give you a free 15-minute consult with myself or one of the crew, plus your choice of nutrition protocol, putting you on the best path for success. Visit powerathlete.com forward slash training and start today. Those who start tomorrow never get shit done. Start fucking today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. How do you process fear, rejection, failure, and many of the other barriers that prevent us from achieving our goals? Well, not everyone has the income and the time to dedicate to someone like performance coach Jason Goldsmith. That's why his book, Take Charge of You, may be exactly what you need to start sucking less and dreaming bigger. Here it is, episode 578. All right, Jason, welcome to... Power Athlete Radio. We're excited to have you, man, explore some coaching and different avenues of your experience. Uh, I've been taking uh, Gander through Take Charge of You, your recent book, but I know your experience doesn't stop there. If, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners real quick, and then we'll explore all realms of empowering and taking charge of you. Sounds fantastic. So I'm Jason Goldsmith. I'm, I'm what's termed as a performance coach. I've been doing this for the last uh, 11, 12 years, predominantly in golf. So uh, I've been working with elite level athletes in golf since 2010. Uh, my very first event was uh, the British Open at St. Andrews with Henrik Stenson. So it's, a, it's an interesting start to a career that I I always joke around that I started at the top and I've been working my way back ever (laughs) since, Um, which obviously a little bit of a joke, but uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've been introduced to some amazing people like Tom house, uh, Deepak Chopra, the uh, co-author of my, my book that I, that we are going to talk about today, uh, David Novak and, uh, and just been able to explore how people learn and then apply that to performance coaching. So hopefully I can have some, uh, some good insights today for the power athlete listeners and, and help them achieve whatever it is they want to achieve on their road to mastery. Yeah. Golf's an extremely interesting sport in the respect of, I mean, it's just you and your silo. And then John and I both come from team sports. So we get the opportunity to feel the charge from each other. And if somebody's down, you pick them up. If you're having an off game, you know, your, your coaches as a staff can empower you. But then in golf, it's just, you're out there alone with your little caddy. What did you find your way to work with those athletes as a golfer yourself, or did they seek you out from your experience as a coach? Yeah, I would say that, uh, all of the business that I've done, uh, has, has been word of mouth. So I'm, I'm not somebody that, that advertises. I, I don't spend a tremendous amount of time on social media. Uh, I, I would say everybody that I've worked with 
and and I've and I've worked with you know essentially two golfers in the last ten years. So there's been other golfers, but the guys that I work with full time have been Jason Day and Justin Rose, and I've I've helped both of those guys get to world number one, and um, and both of those guys came to me from uh, other athletes and uh, other coaches so it's uh it's been like i said a very interesting career and uh and working with tom house i've been exposed to athletes from javelin throwers to pool vaulters to you know nfl quarterbacks um you know major league baseball pitchers tennis players basketball players so you know it's 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 the whole gamut of uh of of working with athletes, team sports, and individual sports. And, and, and what we do is we work on the mental side, like everybody has a physical routine. But what I do is I try to create an environment where that athlete is going to have the freedom to be athletic. Does it start with a problem? So they are relying on their natural abilities these athletes get to a problem and then they seek the mental game or is it more of a proactive approach from these individuals that seek your help? I would say historically in the past, it, it has been um, problem driven. So, you know, they create a belief and, and let's say that belief is uh, I can't putt. And so for the first time in their life, they're considering how to do something that they've never considered how to do before. And so that creates this problem. And, and once they create this problem, it's very difficult to solve the problem with the same mindset that created the problem in the first place. Uh, earlier in your introduction, you discussed um, and talked about how do people learn? Obviously, it was an interesting point that you threw out, and more importantly, an excellent question. So I was wondering, uh, is there a set of... Uh, uh, principles, laws, movements. I mean, I'm wondering, like, uh, to throw that out there, you obviously have to have something, you know, pretty solidified. So I was wondering if you could get, take that and run with it a little bit. Sure. So, I, you know, what I, what I do is unique in the sense that I spend a, a, a great amount of time with the athlete in the beginning. And what I'm trying to figure out, um, are, are they visual auditory kinesthetic like what what's the language they use in describing the blockage that they're having and then i try to adjust my language so that i can speak to that athlete in a way where we're not you know the information isn't getting lost in vision so a, a example of that so yeah he worked with other coaches the information would be lost in the verbal communication. So once I was able to determine that that and everything that we did was based on how he visualized himself performing whatever the coaches wanted him to perform, the, the rest of that coaching staff with that major league baseball team was really stumped by this athlete because they knew the athlete had the tools but they just couldn't communicate with the athlete. And so after we were able to determine that the athlete was just this incredible visualizer, then it was really easy for everybody to then communicate using visual cues rather than auditory or kinesthetic cues. 
Is it pretty standard in golf that, uh, I mean, I'm sure uh, golfers have not only uh, swing coaches, but they have coaches that are working to refine their technique. But is it pretty uh, standard that now they have somebody looking to refine the mental aspect of the game? You know, I, I would say everybody's probably dabbled in it, but but very few people have adapted it as part of their daily regimen. So all the athletes that I work with, they take the mental approach as seriously as they take the approach uh, in the gym or, or working on skill acquisition, any of those things. So, you know, we, we all understand that if you, you haven't spent any time with the mental component, then chances are when you're, you're put into the test that, that you're, you're not going to be able to perform to your highest athletic ability. Sticking with golf over the years, have you seen the weight room become more and more of a factor with the current professional athlete? Well, absolutely. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is a great example of, of how, you know, and even before him, you know, you go back to Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, you know, set the bar very high um, in changing his body to be able to perform and, and do things that other golfers, you know, up until that point really hadn't even considered. And, and Bryson has taken that to, to even the next level. So, um, you know, every professional athlete that I know is, is in the gym and they're working out. I would say golf is, is maybe a little bit different than than other sports in the sense that they're working on functional strength for that very specific action that they're trying to perform. So it's not, you know, Bryson is is an exception to that. Like he's he's trying to create speed and stability for sure, but you know, he's really trying to move that golf ball and and change the game. Would you think that maybe um I mean was Tiger Woods really the kind of the tipping point where, you know, like when I think of like, you know, golfers, I'm thinking like Jack Nicholson and, or uh, Jack Nicholas and uh, some of these older guys that kind of remind me of my dad a little bit, uh, you know, just, they look like guys that probably had about a dozen martinis at lunch and went out and were just incredible scratch golfers. And now you have like kind of the, the tiger woods where this kind of young, more athletic individual coming in. And now when I watch golf, it looks a lot more similar to that than what I remember golf when I was a kid. Well, I mean, I think you can make that analogy in almost any sport, you know, so if you look at, you know, baseball players or football players back in the day, they don't look anything like the football players or baseball players of the modern era. And I would say golf is no different. Um, You know, Tiger was so dominant that I think everybody was trying to figure out what it was that he was doing. And, you know, obviously his physique was what everybody could see. And so they associated that with his performance. But, you know, I would even say that, that Tiger is probably the most mentally tough professional athlete of at least my generation. Um, just in, incredible what he was able to do um, on the golf course and, you know, his ability to use his imagination and visualize what he intended to do. With the stuff that nobody else could see. But I think that was, you know, in conjunction with his physique is what allowed him to be so dominant. You, you look at somebody like Jack, I think, you know, if, if, if you were to compare Jack to Tiger, it's obviously very difficult, but you know, with the modern equipment in the modern golf ball, 
I think Jack would have been very competitive, you know, for that reason that he just had this, this talent and this ability maybe didn't look the part, but it, it didn't mean that he wasn't strong and, and was able to create the speed needed to hit the golf ball on the way. Any of your athletes use uh, John Daly as an example, just to say, Hey, <laughs> need a couple extra swing oils today on the course. I think when we talk about daily, you got to talk about mental toughness. And uh, he brought up a great point about Tiger's mental toughness. I mean, we, since we've since understood what was going on in Tiger's personal life, which actually to me makes it even more impressive that he was able to go on the course and play as well as he did with as much turmoil as he had off the, off the course. So, I mean, that dude is just like, I mean, like the mental fortitude to be able to like compartmentalize all that drama he had in his personal life and go out there and crush the, the golf ball is amazing. Yeah. I mean, John Daly, uh, I, I don't think he gets the respect that he deserves. His, his, you know, he hit the ball a long way, but I remember early in my career watching John Daly warm up and, and hit these just amazing uh, little chip shots while he was eating a cheeseburger <laughs> at the same time. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been something that anybody would have, you know, coach would have trained or, or had an athlete attempt, but it just showed you how incredible, you know, his hands were and how soft his hands were, you know, and, and his ability to putt. I mean, he's just an absolute incredible phenom of an athlete. And, uh, and it just goes to show you that, you know, you have all this talent and, uh, and, you know, you're still able to get the job done. Succeeding despite. Yeah. He, he's succeeding in spite, in spite, in spite of himself. Yeah. But, uh, but like a, a lot of times, and we saw this in the NFL, you had guys that were extremely gifted, but they fit within a personality type that allows them or the, what allows for them, their success is kind of this ragged edge push it to the boundaries, type A, you know, recklessness. And the problem is, is that that doesn't get compartmentalized just on the field or the, you know, the course or the pitch. It just kind of bleeds into everything. And so it's, you know. Well, yeah. Jason, did you get the opportunity to observe Antonio Brown's behavior during the Jets-Tampa Bay Bucks game? I didn't. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I did. Oh, to, to lay, lay the groundwork here. If you're familiar with Antonio Brown, wide receiver, formerly, of the yeah, Tampa Bay yeah, Buccaneers is a good way to put uh, it. Extreme talent, all pro, but has had some disagreements with coaches, teammates, and the like. And just this past weekend, he he was eight catches, a touchdown, and thirty three yards away from a million dollar bonus. Yeah. And during well, two it, games left, it was three three hundred and thirty thousand dollar bonuses is what he was going for. Just shy of a million. Okay. Bonuses. There you go. And so here we are, two games left in the season. And felt at this moment in time he wasn't getting enough opportunities. He probably didn't realize that they added an extra game. Maybe. Because, I mean, the NFL added an extra game. They added 17 games this uh -huh. year. And but, uh, he could have easily, if he had stayed in the game, got those and then also got the other piece of that. Uh -huh. So during the third quarter, Jason, he loses it at a coach and then just starts – on his own, walked away later down the sideline and starts taking off his pads. Teammate Mike Evans comes up to him and tries to like bottle this up and like keep him involved in the game because they were still losing at this point. And then rips off his gloves, rips off his 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 shirt, and just walks out of the stadium 
and freaking takes an Uber to the airport. Yeah. Uh, he tried to get uh, some state troopers to drive him, and they basically said no. Yeah. And then the Uber driver filmed him as they were as he was leaving the, the facility in yeah. or the stadium. Uh, you what, know, I, it's yeah. Uh, just side note: Tampa Bay Bucks then rallied, came back and won minus AB. Yeah. Just a side note, but like that explosive a talent. However, there does, does that type of personality like allow him to succeed? Uh, you know what? There was a real fascinating um, now, despite of. Am I using that right? <laughs> no, like Antonio Brown's different. I wonder. You know, I mean, I I can't relate to to golf just because I don't know those guys like I know th- these individuals. Uh, there was an interesting. Um, I think it was uh, Dr. Robert Malone was recently on Joe Rogan, and he discussed this thing called uh, mass formation psychosis. And it's uh, it, it's pretty interesting if you go into it. But the guy said, when you have a society that's become so decoupled from each other and has free-floating anxiety in the sense that things don't make sense, we can't understand it. And given the attention gets focused by a leader or a series of events on one small point, and this becomes like hypnosis. So uh, he got into this thing with Antonio Brown. And really, um, on? Oh, no, that's cool. no, no, he didn't. But like uh, Jason Whitlock and a bunch of people okay. were kind of relating it through. And what they really think is that Antonio Brown lives in his own fantasy world because he's so connected within social media mm. that he doesn't like like that. Everything is this uh, like you're living, you're starring in your own drama, your own movie, your own TV, you know, made for TV series. And, uh, you know, it's like this ah, man. I really think the social media thing is just adding to the field of the fire. But he's had such a troubled past. I mean, think about the problems he's had. I mean, think about where he was. Um, you know, uh, not paying people. I mean, assaulting women. I mean, he's had an extremely tumultuous existence uh, and that's gone on from high school. I mean, think about his college. I mean, everything, if you go back and you look at the guy, I mean, it's been uh, building. So, I mean, is anybody really surprised by this? I guess they were surprised that he acted in line this far in two seasons. Well, uh, 2.79 seasons with the Bucks. I mean, but think about it. I mean, that guy's been incredible. He was what an incredible receiver for the Steelers. I mean, think about how many places he's played. And, if, you know, he went to the Raiders. They got rid of him. I mean, he's just like you get to the point where like and what's amazing is how many opportunities he's gotten. I mean, I, I, I don't know in golf if a guy, you know, maybe a guy like Tiger gets opportunities. But, I mean, he's able to go out there and perform I mean, even after injuries. Didn't Tiger have a back surgery? And they said, oh, he's done. He'll never came back. He changed his swing and was more dominant. Yeah, I mean, I, the, to speak about Antonio Brown, not knowing him, you know, obviously know him from, from his, his play. I mean, he's incredibly talented. I think when, when you start making really bad decisions, I think the issue is, is that you have bought into this belief system about yourself and the people that are around you aren't doing a good enough job in bringing you back to reality. And, you know, and, and so to me, when I hear about people doing things like that, uh, you know, the first thing I think of is, you know, who are the people around them? What's the support group doing? you know, Monday through Saturday, you know, you obviously have this amazingly talented person, you know, that this potential exists, you know, what are you, what are you doing to prepare yourself in case something happens so that, you know, in that moment, a better decision is made. 
And, you know, again, not knowing anything about, you know, who the team around him is or what they're doing to help him. But that that would be my first question is, is, you know, is it is it what you said? Is he living in this this made up fantasy world that he has created? And, you know, and if so, you know, how, how can you help him, you know, reel back from that? How can you help him become more more present and look at the situation from a realistic lens rather than this, this fantasy lens that, that maybe he is, or maybe he isn't looking. Through. So what, what I found is that as people go longer into this, what they do is they start cutting out people that, you know, tend to, uh, maybe like keep them more grounded. Like, Hey, it's always good to keep people around that, uh, you know, and I saw this as a professional athlete, you know, like where all of a sudden you get a new set of friends and everybody's telling you how great you are. Next thing you know, you start believing, you know, that you are that individual and I think that a lot of times guys don't want to hear it or more importantly, they just want to live in their own echo chamber. So they just surround themselves with people that just keep, you know, the emperor's new clothes, you know. And uh, I think with Antonio Brown, yeah. he's probably effectively cut out everybody out of his life. Uh, and well, Tom Brady, what I feel was that, I mean, his yeah. post game comments. Sure. We're leaning towards let's give him the support he needs at this time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Tom is uh, it's got a big heart. I mean, but you know, look at Tom Brady. I mean, what he you know he, well, he and his, his expectation of performance, performance right is through the roof. I mean, and he's uh you know he's a uh, I mean I don't even know. I mean, when you talk about the greatest athletes on the planet, I mean he's in that conversation. I mean, the the, the greatest people, whether it be swinging a club, throwing a football, baseball. I mean, there's a, a conversation for a few of those people, and you have a guy that's figured it out. And he's trying to bring these other guys along. And, um, you know, I mean, who who knows with Antonio Brown? Uh, the only thing I'm nervous for him is not necessarily like what happened on Sunday, but what happens, you know, 20, 50, 100 Sundays from now. You know, is that a guy that all of a sudden we're going to look and be like, man, he, he died in a hotel room in South Florida, you know, which is seems to be happening all too often to these NFL players where they just – you know, start having issues and then they start retracting from society. And next thing you know, they end up dead somewhere and with a whole bunch of unexplained uh, answers. So it's a scary deal. And um, I don't think it's the CTE thing. I don't think it's concussions and the brain injury because it's always so easy for everybody to be like, oh, it's brain injury. It's brain injury. Honestly, I think it's a lot of it's the social media and, uh, you know, this idea of like not living in reality. And you've basically created this illusion of who you think that you are. And, um, you know, and you have all these people that follow you and just contribute to this. And I think it's there's a psychosis associated with it. And I think we're seeing certain people just that can't handle it, just shatter into a million pieces. It's, it's one of the reasons why David and I wrote this book was, you know, the, the first part of this book is really about adapting a coaching mindset. And obviously the, the premise of becoming your own best coach, you know, part of that narrative is getting to know who you are. Right. And I think that that's probably the critical step that a lot of people never even bother to ask. Like, you know, who am I? What do I want? You know, what do I want to give? Um, you know, what's my purpose? I think for professional athletes, it, it's difficult because their assumption is, is their purpose is their sport. And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, that's the thing that obviously, you know, brings them the success and the wealth and everything else. But, you know, if, if who you are, you know, isn't, isn't just that, like, you know, what you are, what you do is, is more than that, then uh, it's, it's really important, 
you know, and I think what you said is, is, is critical, you know, what Antonio Brown decides to do moving forward is, is, is so important for his own health. And, you know, and, and everybody, you know, where you were talking about earlier about, you know, the emperor's clothes, you know, most people don't like being uncomfortable and the struggle, you know, as professional athletes, you get used to the struggle in the gym and on the field and all that, you know, but you know, there, there are other struggles that you need to deal with other areas of your life that you need to grow and learn and, and create those skills as well. And I think that, you know, if you look at it in total, you know, those are the parts of his wheel that are really flat. And, you know, and those are the parts of, of, you know, his team, that if he is going to make a change, he is going to have to start to deal with those difficult things and, you know, and hopefully come back and be this amazing teammate and, you know, athlete and, you know, whatever son, father, all the other relationship stuff that I'm sure is, uh, is not as well-rounded as it could be. So um, you bring up a great point about knowing yourself uh, and discussing that in the book. Um, how does somebody begin to do that work? You know, so I think it's just about being neutral and uh, in developing, you know, some sort of daily routine where uh, you're either practicing some sort of mindfulness or meditation or just self-reflection to get to know yourself. So you know, to me, that's the, the critical piece is just is just carving out you know, start with three or five minutes a day and just get to, to know, uh, you know, who am I is, is just a good question. You know, a lot of my coaching is based on asking yourself good questions and, and not necessarily, uh, you know, assuming that the first answer that comes to your head is the best answer. Um, you know, for me, I've really struggled in school growing up. Uh, turns out that I'm uh, dyslexic, but didn't realize that until until later in life. But just really felt like I was trying as hard as I possibly could as a kid, but just never really got classroom. And when teachers would ask me to read aloud, I really struggled. And so school became very, very difficult for me. But if I would have allowed that belief to be the one that dictated how my life turned out, um, then I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve the things that I've been able to achieve in my life. So I think a lot of it is just giving yourself the space to be introspective enough and ask yourself questions you know, often enough that you, you realize that, that you aren't your thoughts and you're not your mind, you know, you're so much more. And I think that that's, you know, that's a, a great place to start. In, in the book, you offer some prompts to have this conversation with yourself. And what are some of these key questions? There's one in particular I found interesting that leads off of what's getting in your way. So not starting with why the purpose identifying the the barriers within your life. I thought that was an interesting one to begin with. So why that question first and whether questions have you prompted the, the reader to begin this conversation? 
Well, I think, you know, so much of what we talk about is built around joy. And, you know, and if you can identify the things in your life that are, are blocking, blocking your joy and, and figure out how to eliminate those things, then, then, you know, a consequence of that is going to be, you're going to have the space for more joy to occur in your life. And, you know, you, you guys being professional athletes and, and, and knowing what it felt like to be a young person that has joy that, that you were able to play, or maybe it was many sports when you were younger, say that, you know, athletes feel when they're playing, you know, gives them all the inspiration and motivation that they need to up every day and do the difficult things to continue to to support that that skill set and you know and so if you you find out that you have things in your life that are blocking your ability to do that then it's about eliminating those things once you've identified those limitations or barriers that are getting in the way or joy what's the next step for for asking yourselves this this question yeah. So then it's, you know, once you've identified the things in your life that are bringing you joy, then it's about, you know, figuring out what your single biggest thing is or, or, or what your purpose is. And, and, you know, and I think that that takes a little bit of time, but, but once you're able to identify that, then, then, you know, at least the direction you want to go and that, and that's the beginning of your roadmap. So, you know, figuring out what, what, you know, you, can do to create more joy in your life. Like, you know, for me, um, you know, it, it was developing this, this skill of, of coaching. And what I figured out in my life was like being that person that helped to inspire other people to figure out what their single biggest thing was brought me this amazing contentment enjoy in my own personal life. So, you know, in service of others, um, you know, I serve myself, you know, so that's kind of, you know, one of my mantras that I've had for a lot of years. And, uh, and it's, and it's really supporting, you know, I wake up every day and I'm really stoked to be able to go out and help other people, you know, achieve these things that a lot of them didn't think were possible. With, Sports, athletics, coaching, there's almost this inherent why and reason that you're connected with that brings you to other people. How do you feel this system of question asking or self-analysis carries over to the, the general population, the everyday man that just happens to lift some weights? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, going to the gym and, and, and exercising is as critical as having a, you know, meditation or mindfulness practice you, you you need those things to be well-rounded and, and a healthy individual so a person that that likes to go to the gym you know what they're doing is they're you know satisfying that part of them that that understands that that exercise is essential to, to being healthy you know so you know for me you know i i think that that's that's a critical piece for, for everybody that's out there. That's, you know, part of your, you know, listening audience, you know, being in the gym is, is fantastic because you're 
you're satisfying that part of everybody that needs to have a certain amount of exercise today to be healthy and, you know, figuring out, okay, does that mean, you know, that there's a higher purpose to this? You know, they might find that out, you know, they might find that their single biggest thing is, you know, coaching other people or their single biggest thing is, you know, competing, or maybe their single biggest thing, you know, has something to do with nutrition, you know, who knows, but, but if Jim going to the gym is providing them with that joy in their life, then, you know, figure out, you know, is there something that they could explore that allows them to get more of that into their life? I think that's what's helped the, the explosion of the, uh, general pop fitness competitions, the weekend warriors is that sense of accomplishment. I think, you know, you, you brought up a great point talking about joy and like looking for things that you enjoy and like, uh, you know, that's an kind of an interesting play on the words, but like things that allow you to stay motivated to continue to live your life. Uh, as a, you know, professional athlete, you retire and all of a sudden, Hey, you know, you get to run on the field and battle. And I, I stayed up late and watched Ben Roethlisberger's, uh, play last night. Swan song. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Um, he threw like 42 times for like 122 yards. <laughs> it was, it was, it was not a great performance. Uh, but it was typical Ben Roethlisberger. We're just going to find a way to like win this game. And, uh, you know, defense played well and they ended up getting the W for him. And he had this like kind of emotional, uh, you know, 18 years played here at Three Rivers. And, uh, not, is it called Three, still called Three Rivers? Hinesfield. Yeah, Hinesfield. The, yeah, the I mustard played. bottle. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but like it, it, it was cool to stay up and uh, I, I stayed up late, which is to 11, which is unheard of. But it was cool to, to see him in kind of the ending of an era. And uh, I mean, I feel so bad for him. He's so immobile. I mean, he just like barely sidesteps people and he's out there slinging it. But he still got a win, even though he threw it 42 times for 122 yards. Uh, but. You know, you think like now as that guy goes out, what does he have to look forward to? I mean, he's definitely going to get into Canton in five years. So he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And is he an announcer or like how does he continue? And I think he even said it. He's like, you know, uh, what makes this fun is just come and see the guys um, to be in the locker room, the camaraderie, to get on the planes and play the game and, you know, live and die in the struggle. And then you retire and all of a sudden that, you know, you're separated from that. So how do you continue to find joy in your life? And for a lot of people, um, you know, like how do they continue to live their life past a point where they're, you know, no longer at the pinnacle? I mean, golf's one of those sports that, you know, you can play forever. I mean, you know, a lot of, I mean, my dad played into his eighties. So not that he was a professional golfer. He, 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 he actually had like one great hit, which was pretty funny. Every time he played, he's like, I just need one good one. And that got him keep coming back. But like, think about that. Like, uh, I don't get to play football anymore. But then, you know, how do you find other ways to compete and other things to be competitive? Uh, hopefully you don't channel it into your kids and be one of those annoying parents that are out there, you know, screaming at their at the refs at their five-year-old basketball game. But, um, you know, that's an interesting point. Like, uh, like, as people start transitioning, how do you help them understand, more importantly, like, how they can find joy and how they can continue to extend to feel like they're still doing something? Well, to me, you know, I, I think you kind of answered your own question, right? It's taking an inventory of what are the things that, that bring joy on a regular basis. And obviously, you know, you're doing this, this radio show, which is bringing you, you know, the same kind of, you know, I'm sure elements of, of what you got. 
you know, Definitely. being on the field. <laughs> you got this. Playboy Mansion. Yeah, a Playboy Mansion, playing Power the Athlete Super Bowl, Radio. Power Athlete Radio. It's right up there. <laughs> I, I love they're, it. They're past it. Right. I mean, so, I mean, there you go. I mean, you see it in your face, right? So, you know, to me, I think, you know, will it ever be the same? I mean, there's, you know, it's impossible for you to recreate that. But if you find things in your life that you're able to do, you know, that are, that are helping you help other people, you know, it's a different kind of satisfaction, but it, it is satisfaction and it does bring you joy. So, you know, I, I think that, that it's about, taking that inventory of, you know, what are the things in life? Like, you know, and so is he going to be able to recreate the NFL and, and all that? Probably not. But if it, if it is something, then, you know, he needs to become a coach, you know, he needs to put himself back in that environment and figure out a way where he can continue to add value. And I, and I guarantee you that if that's what he wants to do, he'll figure out a way to, to do it. I mean, Tom house, who I, you know, I, I keep mentioning, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he's probably the number one rotational coach in the world. So Tom Brady, Drew Brees, like he coaches all these guys. Oh, yeah. So, okay. oh yeah. And so Tom is by far the best uh, throwing coach in the world and probably has been for the last 20. He was Nolan Ryan's pitching coach. He, gotcha. he, he pitched himself, right? He, famous for catching Hank Aaron's, you know, home run and giving it back to him. I mean, he's, he's this amazing coach. And so Tom has this great saying, you know, I could go and find anybody anywhere that wants to be, you know, a famous athlete. He said, the difference is, is they don't need it. When you think about that, you know, when you need to do something, people can't stop you from doing it everybody wants all of the accolades and accomplishments and, you know, success and, and all those kinds of things. But, but, but what do you need to do? And me, that's the difference, right? So if, if Ben figures out what his need is, not his want, but figures out what his need is, then, you know, nobody in the world could stop him from achieving it. Yeah. It was funny. They were talking about, um, his kids are, old enough to where they were asking questions and they were <laughs> like, uh, Hey dad, how come you got drafted here? How come teams passed you up? And I mean, his kids were uh, like old enough to be able to, to throw this out there. Well, I, I'm going to re I re- recall very vividly his quarterback class, Eli Manning, yep. Philip rivers, Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah. Like if Eli didn't go one, I, I mean, he's Miami of Ohio. I mean, I knew Rivers was thinking uh, Pittsburgh because Dan mm-hmm. uh, is it Bill Cower. Bill Cower went NC State. Rivers yeah. NC State. Like vivid year for me for quarterbacks for some reason. But um, I mean, Eli Manning was great, and the freaking stock. Of course, he didn't go number one. Yeah. No, it's it's yeah. I mean, but he he lasted longer than all of them. You are correct on that. And one. Uh, I think they said that. Um, God, what was it? He's. Uh, he's never played in a game or like it, it was some crazy stat that like every single game, like a, a game, I think it was every game 16 he played in, he's never not played in a game where it wasn't trying to go to the playoffs. So like he, like it, like they, they were looking at it and they're like, you know, like a lot of times teams, I mean, this happened to us in the NFL where you're like, you know, you, you get eliminated in like week 14 
and you still got to go play 15, 16, week 17. Or week and, four if you're Houston, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God I never played on those teams. But, uh, you know, you play, uh, all of a sudden you get eliminated or something happens real late, like in the fourth quarter of the season. And, um, you know, you're like playing these last couple games knowing you're not going to go to the playoffs. And that, I think they said for Ben, like he had never gone into week 16 not thinking he'd go to the playoffs. And then I think like statistically they got eliminated twice. So, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing, like the body of work that he's done and, uh, you know, how competitive Pittsburgh has been. I mean, Pittsburgh was always a, a motherfucker to go play against. Um, you know, it didn't matter who it was. I mean, LeVon Kirkland, who I got to play against. But Pittsburgh was always a team that always always played hard. And, uh, you know, when I played in Philly or wherever, I mean, those were always teams that, you know. So it was, uh, it, yeah, it was cool. It was worth staying up and watching it. And then also having been in his shoes where like all of a sudden you see it ending and to see the look on his face of like, I've had this great career. I've done this. This is how people have known me. And now it's ending and I'm having to leave this. Like, who am I going to be? You'll, you'll forever be Ben Roethlisberger. But like, you know, when you're all by yourself and you're driving home in the car or you're, you know, home late at night and you're sitting there by yourself and you realize like, this is how I've identified myself since I was 14 years old. And now I'm in my, you know, what's he on? He's got to be in his late thirties, early forties. He's got to be in his forties, uh, pretty close. I mean, that's the that's the difficult thing. Now, yeah. Nettie, go on and hopefully get on the sports desk and be Terry, Toby, Tommy, and you know Terry, Big Ben. Yeah, Big Ben. I mean, he could probably do it. I, I mean, know. usually the quarterbacks are pretty good. So, I mean, I think you know when you when you think of what professional athletes have to do every single day, I think you guys just start to think that that's how everybody else is too. And so, and so, you know, to me, I always, you know, I, I, I hear my athletes sometimes say things like, Oh, if it wasn't for this, I would have been, you know, laying bricks or, you know, something like that. And I'd say, Whoa, 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 hold on a second. Do you imagine the amount of time that you've devoted to this sport? Like you apply that to anything else you'd be like one of the top brain surgeons or, or whatever it be is. An amazing like, like, bricklayer. Right. Well, <laughs> right. But nothing wrong with that. Right. No, I mean, no. so, you know, the, the truth is, is it's like, I think sometimes like the context is lost. Like you, you forget the amount of devotion and just sheer amount of time that you've given to this sport. So, you know, to me, if Ben was to, to take that same amount of time and apply it to, to whatever it is that, that excited him, you know, he, chances are, he's going to be pretty darn successful at that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, he, he has the opportunity to go do whatever he wants. What's so cool is when you see a guy at the end of his career, uh, you know, have the opportunity to go reinvent himself and become somebody brand new. I mean, that's something I've always really strived for the idea that you don't have to continue to be the same person you were at this point. You can pull the ripcord and go do something else and be a completely different person if you want. And that's the cool part about it. Like he's done this. Now he gets a chance to go do something else. Jason, do you feel there's a difference between like the league telling him he's done and then Ben deciding I'm moving on? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that, that has to, that question has to be answered in his, you know, his heart of hearts. Right. I mean, he has to, to know, you know, when, to, when to say when and, um, and, you know, and, and, you know, physically or, you know, whatever the reason is, it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Nolan Ryan not being able to recover, you know, 
uh, you know, quick enough. I mean, that's the only reason why, you know, he left leaves baseball, right. Is because he can't recover in the amount of time to play enough games, you know, but it had nothing to do with his ability, you know? So it's like, you know, you know, could Ben, you know, be a quarterback that, that, you know, plays a certain number of downs in, you know, key situation, you know, probably if he wanted to, but that's, again, that's up to him, you know, what's the role that he wants to play. And, you know, is, is he willing to play a different role than, you know, not a role as a starter? Um, you know, that's, that's completely up, up to the athlete, I think. Well, for him, um, it's kind of a like interesting piece that he, he's entering like kind of the end of this era. And I'm sure the team's looking at like, hey, we got to you know try to bring somebody new on. And he's kind of feeling the pressure of like, okay, I had my chance. Like how much longer am I going to stay here? And the team feeling like, hey, we can't keep investing in this guy because this isn't our long-term solution. I mean, he's kind of at the end. So it's kind of probably a mutual thing. It's nice that they've let him get to this point because he did have some rough times. You know, he went to rehab and all that and they stuck with him. So he's done pretty well. Like, didn't he have something like weird, like uh, um, some scandals early on? I mean, so I mean, he's you know, legitimately had a 20 year career, 18 years. So to see him kind of get out the other side is, uh, is pretty good. Uh, my favorite Nolan Ryan moment was when he, he, uh, threw at that guy and then the guy came out and charged him and mm-hmm. Nolan Ryan just smashed him with a right hand. Oh yeah. And got him and just like kicked his ass. And I was like, Ooh, look at Nolan Ryan, uh, excellent fighter, like totally ready for it. He had a great rotational coach. He did. He was killing people <laughs> Had a great punch. And, uh, you know, the hilarious part is when that guy charged him, he probably thought, you know what, I'm going to take this old man. And the dude beat his ass. Uh, yeah, just the the picture of the, the Rangers jersey covered in blood. Yeah. And then he continues to pitch. Yeah. I think he'd get kicked out of the, the game at least this yeah. in today's day and age. Well, we've uh, effectively sterilized and neutered the games a lot where they, that stuff doesn't exist anymore. But, yeah, that's still yeah, my favorite moment. Yeah, he's he's an absolutely incredible athlete, and uh, and I think you know today uh, there's no chance that he's able to stay in the game. But then, like, what are you going to do? You're going to take Nolan Ryan out? Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, he he pitched into his 40s, didn't he? Yes, he did. I think he threw his last no hitter. Uh, I want to say he was he was in his his late late forties when he threw his seventh no hitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was incredible. Yeah. It's one of my, one of my, yeah, I remember seeing him sit on the bench and he takes his hat off and he's like completely bald. And I was like, Holy shit, that's an old man. Well, and yeah, remember, he still goes to Astro games and he's got a, a ranch and a beef company now. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he's just a cowboy who could slang, who could slang the ball. Um, Tom tells a great story about that, that seventh no hitter that he actually calls the no hitter out off the worst warmup and bullpen that he's ever had. And Tom, Tom is his pitching coach at the time and thinks that he's quit the game. And, uh, and Nolan misses, misses the, 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 the warmup, uh, the, you know, the national anthem and, and goes out and throws 13 pitches and, and strikes three guys out and comes and sits in the, in the dugout. And, uh, and he says, boys, get me one. That's all we're going to need today. Calls the no hitter in the very first inning. Oh, shit. And, uh, yeah, it's an absolutely incredible story. If you ever, ever get a chance to talk to Tom House, have, have him tell that story because it's, it's one of my favorite sports stories ever. 
you know, my other favorite sports story is about the guy who pitched a no hitter on acid. I don't know this one. You, uh, do, do you know this story? Uh, Charles, Charles, uh, who, who's the guy? He, um, uh, baseball player, I, I guess he, he, uh, pitcher thought it was a day off. Charles, it, it'll come up, but he tells a story that he, uh, the guys decided to go party a little bit. He dropped some acid and then they called him and they're like, Hey, we need you to pitch. And he's like, okay. And shows Todd up and Ellis. yeah, Todd Ellis. Doc, Doc. Yeah. Sorry. Doc Ellis. And so he goes through this whole deal about how he basically is out there and he thinks he's floating and just starts throwing these pitches and ends up throwing a no hitter and he's high on acid. And the story is hysterical to have him tell it. And then they narrated it with cartoons. Oh god. And uh yeah, Doc Ellis, like that like that Nolan Ryan story is right up there with that Doc Ellis story. Yeah. <laughs> Just goes to show you like talk about attention to detail and mastery. You give some guy let him drop acid and go out there and like nobody knew it. Well yeah. <laughs> Mindset. Uh <laughs> Jason, back to it. We hit conversation. We're entering into mindset. It's Nolan Ryan turning to his boys and just putting his performance on his back. Like he believes it. Um, certain self-knowledge he knows. Ah, I got it today. Um, from mindset, like what's the next phases in our process of taking charge of yourself? So, you know, you, you have to you have to have the ability to uncover transformational insights, right? So, you know, you, you, you go from knowing yourself to knowing what it is you need to do, right? That's the, the roadmap part of it, you know, gathering your team around you, your, your support, your assistant coaches, you know, making sure that, that you have a, a clear destination. And then, you know, it's about, you know, consistent work on a daily basis of, of how to get there. Um, you know, and it, and then the last thing is just taking action, right? So you, you know, you got to learn who you are, you know, learn what, what it is that, that you want to do. And then you got to, you know, create that, that plan and then, you know, gather people around you. Like we were talking earlier, you know, you don't necessarily need everybody agreeing with you. You need people that are going to be honest and give you an honest assessment and, uh, and then you got to look at the feedback and you got to take action and, and work, right. It, you know, nothing, nothing worthwhile, you know, doesn't happen without a certain amount of struggle, but you, you know, you have to understand that the struggle is just, that's just the part of it, right. That's the road sign. That's the part that's letting you know that, that, you know, if you can start to be comfortable being uncomfortable, you're going to be able to achieve a lot of things. I mean, I mean, and that should, you know, resonate with all your guys that are, that are in the gym and anybody can tell you, you know, when, when you're in the gym and you're working out, there's, there's going to be a time where you're not comfortable. And, and, and that's, you know, the time where, you know, you're probably making some, you know, some, some great strides in the right direction. Um, you know, because your, your body's changing. What well, like, where's goal setting fit into all this? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's like a an initial. I mean, we we do this here at Power Athlete, and we'll probably end up doing it here in the next week or so. But like sitting down and taking stock of what you did in the past, and then the ideas of like, hey, this is what I expect to do in the future, and this is what I want to do, and this is the goals that we want to set for 2022. This is what where we came from. You know, do we goal set last year? How did it look? And then just taking stock. Uh, is that something you do with your athletes? Is it something that you periodically do? Do you do a, you know, after action AAR review at the end of the year? And more importantly, like, uh, how do you, you know, help these young athletes kind of 
bring that stuff in sync? Sure. So, you know, to me, you know, we're measuring everything. So, you know, everything that we do is being measured on a daily basis. Um, we, we have certain, uh, levels of performance that we want to achieve, but for us, it's, it's really about how can we just continue to get better at very small increments. So, so we're working, you know, towards, towards mastery rather than a certain goal, because I think what we found in the past is, you know, when our athletes have set a goal, like becoming the best in the world, what happens when you achieve it? Um, you know, then there's, then there's, you know, a, a kind of a letdown. Whereas if your goal is mastery, like daily, how do I continue to stay on the path of just getting a fraction of a percent better daily? You know, then we start to talk about this compounding effect, uh, which in, you know, something like becoming world number one is just a road sign on the way. And, and that's kind of how I approach it with with even the youth athletes that I work with is, you know, our goal is just to get fractionally better every single day. Then, you know, we don't run into that hiccup of, oh, well, I just want to play baseball on the high school team, or I just want to do this in college or, you know, all of those things, you know, those are, those are great goals. But if, you know, personal mastery is the ultimate goal, then it's, you know, the, the journey that's never, you know, the destination that's never achieved. It's, it's constantly moving towards the horizon. I, I like that personal mastery. Uh, when communicating with clients, we uh, essentially a roadmap, similar, a plan. Most people come to us in the fitness realm with outcome goals. I want to lose 30 pounds. I want to bench press 315. I want to get back to my, my high school uh, football Play weight. weight. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So an outcome. And then while awesome, we aim to then coach them into a process, which is the consistency, the habits showing up, which then result in your outcome. But then, right, the, the trap of I lost my 30 pounds. Now what? And then there is this letdown, getting away from that. And eventually, more and more time that they spend with us in their process, it becomes identity. I am a power athlete. I am Jack Streets, one of our programs. I am a Jack Streeter. And so it, it, it begins more, but I like this personal mastery, meaning that there is this opportunity for their goals, their habits that the weight room provides to have the ripple effect into their lives and hopefully their kids, right? A reverberation of performance that all started with the, the conversation with themselves to use a note from take charge of you. So, you know, what is, what does being a power athlete mean beyond? you know, those words I mean, power is obviously like this word that could have so many possible meanings An athlete. It's, it's the same thing, you know, to me, you know, I, I started this, this company called mustard with Tom and, you know, part of our mission statement is, you know, revolutionizing human performance through the power of play. And, you know, and to me, to be an athlete is to make sure that every single day there's like an element of play in your life, you know, and, you know, power athlete, it's like you're taking that and you're amplifying that, that message, you know, and so it's, it's, you know, 
how do you create this, this mission of, you know, having people, you know, have a certain dedication that they need to have this discipline, this accountability in their life. And then how do they apply that to every facet of their life? Right. So the gym is just one part of their, their life. But, you know, if they applied that power athlete mentality to every aspect of their life, you know, what would the, the overall arcing life look like? Like what could they achieve if they had that same level of accountability, discipline, you know, inspiration, motivation, all those things to every other facet of their life, you know, that, that would be mastery, right? Personal mastery. I think a lot of it comes down to visualization as well. Um, like that's something that uh, keeps coming up. And when people email us and, you know, we field a, a ton of, of contacts and just a ton of like info where people are, you know, Hey, this is the, uh, this is the usage for the program. This is a problem I'm having. How can, you know, you assist in this way? And it's really interesting. One of the things that keeps popping up is people starting to visualize themselves as a power athlete. Uh, I never thought of myself in this realm until you, you know, uh, extended it like, uh, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, a door kicker, a fireman, you know, military, whatever, that's, you know, doing something powerful, that's generating force, that's doing something dynamic in such a way to, uh, you know, whether it, you know, kick a door off the hinge to get a bad guy or, you know, pull somebody out of a fire, you know, and that extends all the way to, you know, sports like uh, football or, you know, trying to crush a little ball uh, with a stick. And it's really interesting that uh, people start kind of embodying this mentality. And uh, it's funny when I get these emails, it's like I didn't picture myself like this until I heard the narrative. And this resonates with me in this piece and this thing. And I saw it this way. And it's really always cool to, to understand the origin story of how they came to us. And so I wonder for, for you guys uh, and, you know, this mastery, um, it's like I know the, the realm in which you're working is within golf. But like that constant execution and that, you know, constant pursuit of perfection in terms of movement and mindset. I mean, that's really universal to all sports. So as uh, as you kind of, you know, this is the realm in which you're working. But as you start kind of branching out, uh, you know, how do you see that going? And more importantly, um, you know, these are all things that are unique to individuals that are searching for mastery. Yeah, you know, and so the co-author of this book is this gentleman named David Novak, who who ran the world's largest restaurant chain. So Yum Brands. So it's all the Taco Bell, KFCs, Pizza Huts, and Habit restaurants in the world. I think 35,000 restaurants or something like that. So it's this ginormous brand. And, you know, and, and so what we're talking about, you know, applies to business, right? I mean, you know, so, you know, where you say, you know, power athlete mentality, I mean, I, I can imagine that CEOs are visualizing themselves as being power athletes, right? And, you know, so to me that, that it's, it's really this narrative, this story, you know, so, you know, David is the guy that every morning, you know, he's in the gym at 6 a.m. Like it doesn't matter where he is in the world, you know, he's in the gym and he's throwing weight around, you know, and, and he feels, you know, I watch him in the gym, you know, he's got these dumbbells and he's lifting, you know, I, I can't even imagine the guy's 69 years old, you know, shoots his age in golf still, hmm. but you know, it's that mindset. It's that, that image, that, that narrative of how he sees himself. And, you know, and to me, that's, 
that's the secret sauce, right? If, if, you know, if, if I, if I have an athlete and the athlete hits a putt and the first thing that that athlete says when they, they hit that putt is the reason why I missed that putt is X, Y, and Z a great putter who hits that putt, same putt, same putt doesn't go in. The great putter has a completely different narrative. The great putter misses that putt and goes, Oh my God, I thought that was going in the hole. I, I can't imagine that putt didn't go in the hole. Same exact outcome, but they, you know, through the narrative, see it in two completely different ways. So, you know, to me, I think that's the secret sauce, right? When you said you're getting people who are now seeing themselves, you know, visualizing themselves as power athletes, it's, it's the story, right? You've changed their belief system. Right. So now they're seeing themselves as a completely different person. So when they're introducing themselves to other people, they're like, Hey, Joe, how are you? It's like, I'm great. You know, well, what's, what's great about your life? Well, I'm a power athlete now. Well, what does that mean to you? Right. And then they have this whole story wrapped up in it. I mean, it's, it's life-changing, right? So when you, you talk about that ripple effect, right, it, it, it cannot not have this, effect that goes out into the rest of the world. Everybody they have, you know, that they come in contact with is now going to hear that new story about how Joe now sees himself as this disciplined, accountable person. And, you know, it's life changing. So when I played uh, in the Eagle or so when, when I, uh, I got drafted to Philadelphia, so I played uh, in Philly for five years. And what was interesting is we won a ton of games. I played in three NFC, uh, three NFC championship games, and we won a ton of games. And when something bad happened or we lost, it was kind of like, man, I can't believe we lost. Like, I, you know, like it, it was almost as if uh, like the earth fell off its axis for us to lose. And if we lose, like, like this is never going to happen again. And then I went to the Kansas City Chiefs, and all of a sudden something bad would happen, and people would be like, oh, here we go again. And it was this feeling of like, you know, we're, you know, we're destined to lose. And if we win, it's by some off chance and guys were just waiting on the bad shoe to drop. And it was so weird to me where I came from a place where like, if we lost, somebody had to do something fantastic to beat us or something that like, you know, wasn't going to happen, like something improbable happened for us to lose. And then I go to a place where everybody was kind of expecting to lose. And if we did win, we're like, oh my God, we won. How do we do that? And, uh, and then my 10th year, when I went to the Patriots, it was uh, interesting sitting in in meetings and listening to Belichick, who was so matter of fact, and it was like, you know, we win a lot of games. That's what we do. And if you're not used to winning a lot of games or you're not into this, there's the door. And it was just so matter of fact. It's like we're champions. Just look at everybody's Super Bowl rings. And uh, I got excited, um, you know, and I ended up getting hurt in the last preseason game and didn't get a chance to play there. But I was so stoked to play there because I felt like it was getting back to what I played early in my career where – Hey, uh, we're the New England Patriots. Um, you know, if somebody's going to beat us, it's because they fell on the sword and did something fantastic where we made a mistake. Like we're going to win every game. And uh, I like, it, you know, having played that four years in Kansas City, uh, it was so refreshing to go back to that mentality. And when people ask me, like, what's the difference in teams? I always point to that. I'm like certain teams expect to win every game and everybody in the organization uh, you know, expects to win a game. And if something doesn't happen because you can't win them all, uh, you know, that was a fluke. And there's other teams that don't expect to win and they expect to lose. And if they do win, it's a fluke. And I don't know how you change that mindset. I don't know how you, 
uh, you know, do it in terms of like a like large. I mean, I, I know you can do it maybe for an individual, but like, how do you do that on like a large scale? I have no idea. I just wondered if you've run into that. And more importantly, working with golfers who are able to have that flexible mindset to change and then all of a sudden get into that where they miss the putt. And they're like, how the fuck did I miss that? I never miss a putt. Yeah. You know, so to me, it reminds me of this quote that um, is, I think it's an Einstein quote. I'm not 100% sure. I always say it's an Einstein quote, but it's, it's basically, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Mm -hmm. So what happens in our minds is, you know, we, we go back to this narrative, we tell ourselves this story. And if the story is something's broke, then the story also can't be that we're doing everything that we, you know, right to win. Right. So it's two completely different mindsets. And so, you know, what you described at, you know, being in Philadelphia is, is the environment or the culture was one of we're successful and this is what we do where the culture in the chiefs was there's something broke and we need to fix it. And then you went back to the culture of what we do is win. Now you have that ability to change that, that mindset, but, but it has to, you know, be a culture that everybody adopts in the, in the coaching staff. Right. So it's, it's, it's dealing with all of those things about like the mindset is what creates the issue. And, and so if you, you know, you see something as I need to create a solution, you're already in the problem solving mindset. So from that mindset, you can't create a solution. So, you know, I have this great example of, I work with this, this, executive who had just got promoted and she was giving this presentation and the presentation was this huge software company and she knew that the software wasn't finished. And so when I went to her boardroom, I said, okay, what are all the problems that could possibly go wrong in your presentation? And she literally wrote 27 different problems on her whiteboard. And the very first problem she identified was the software will freeze and everybody in the audience will know that the software isn't finished. And then the last thing she wrote was, as I walk onto the stage, I don't wear high heels a lot. So I'm going to trip and fall flat on my face and everybody's going to laugh. Right. So that was the spectrum of the 27 problems. And, and we did a, we did a little mindfulness meditation and I got her in a, a neutral place. And so, you know, if, if we get into a little neuroscience, you know, when you're, when you're anxietal, your brain is, is in a high beta frequency. And so when the brain is in that high beta frequency, it creates more problems. And, and so you get kind of stuck in this problem identification, problem solution mindset. When you can get the brain into a high alpha, low theta, frequency, then you get into that playful, creative place where you're actually in problem solution or there is no problem. I'm just performing and playing and, and being creative. And so if you can help somebody get out of that high beta in, into the high alpha, low theta state, then 
you know, then solutions make themselves available. And so once we got into that creative, playful place, I said to her, I said, well, what if I, uh, I had a magic lamp and I rubbed the lamp and out of the lamp came a genie and the, the genie was going to solve the first problem. How would the genie solve the problem? And she looked at the whiteboard and she said, well, the genie would probably just do a PowerPoint presentation and take a bunch of slides and I'd have a little clicker and I would run through each slide and nobody would not know that the software wasn't running. I would just forward each slide as I wanted the audience to see it and I wouldn't even have to run the software and that would eliminate the problem of the software crashing. And I said, great. And we literally did that for all 27 problems. But, you know, the reason why I bring up that story is it just shows you that you know, as an organization or an individual gets stuck in a mindset of all they see are problems, then they think that they're doing themselves a service by constantly being in this problem identification, problem solution mindset, but, but they never get to the part beyond it, which is how do I creatively play with this situation and figure out a completely different way of looking at it. No, I mean, uh, I, I think people, um, and dude, uh, Tex, you can attest to this. Uh, if there's a problem, uh, I want to know solutions. Like, I know we have problems. I know if there's a problem, that's great, and you can present it to me. But if the next comp part of this is like, hey, here's a problem we're having. Here's some solutions, or let's start working through solutions. I think what happens so often is people start just kind of circling problems. And it's just like, just circle and circle, and you you know just keep, uh, is it ruminating? You are correct. Yes. Yeah, ruminating on It's not a rudiment. It's <laughs> that is what a cow is. Yeah, that's a rudiment. A r- ruminating on these problems and not searching for solutions. Uh, you know, we, we saw this in the NFL all too much. I mean, uh, you know, hey, uh, we're going to have this game plan. We're going to go out. We're going to run the ball. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden, you know, they have a perfect blitz or something happens. So they stunt right into it and it's a tackle for loss. And all too often, uh, what would happen when this when this went down is coaches would abandon uh, the like the uh, you know like the game plan. And I remember thinking, like, dude, we rehearsed this thing all week. We've done installs. We've done. We've watched film. We've done like you know fifty hours worth of work, both on the field and the film room and everything, to implement a game plan. And we get one tackle for loss, and you guys fucking abandon it. And I remember always having being like, why don't we just run the plays we practiced? Like they're going to get one one time, and um, uh, I used to get real frustrated and tell these guys, uh, tell our coaches, I would never want to be in a foxhole with you guys. If all of a sudden the bullets started flying, you guys would probably fucking blow me up in the foxhole because you guys were so nervous on this. And uh, that was something that was universal, where you know we have a game plan, this is what we present, this is what we're going to do, and all of a sudden it doesn't work, and then all of a sudden people start pointing fingers and guys are yelling and angry and this, and I'm always like, fuck, this is. This is stressful for me because I put faith like, uh, um, you know, my job as an NFL player was to execute the game plan in which you provide me. I'm assuming that you're the expert. You're the coach. You're the person that's watched all the film. You're the strategist. You guys put this together to put us in the best chance to win. And uh, I'll tell you this, the teams where we weren't as successful, we weren't put in a position to win uh, because they did not have faith in what they were doing. Whereas I felt like uh, earlier on when I played in Philly, like shit, if if uh, if there was, like I said, if there was a tackle for loss or something didn't happen, we're going to keep just moving ahead because you know what? They're going to win one. The bad guys will get lucky on occasion. 
And uh, that's something when I watch NFL football or I'm this, I mean, it happens all too often. Hey, you know, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to go and we're going to, you know, establish the run game. We're going to, you know, do this and this. And then all of a sudden you see something happen. And it's like they, they burn the playbook and just start fucking throwing darts at a board trying to come up with stuff. So the one thing that I've always attested to is make a bet, move in that direction. And you know what? We're going to see it through with blinding, almost like blistering stupidity of moving in that direction until we you know, figure out that it's not going to work. It's not going to change anything. Like the game plan is still the game plan. I hope you know, I, I, I hope you know that this is how we roll, right? Oh, yeah. We make bets. Yeah. We're gamblers over here. No, Jason. I mean, I, I like I like to make bets. Like uh, one that we were betting on this year was, uh, you know, with our resolutionists, with like the, you know, we've been doing a deal with um, people that buy a full year of programming up front, get like a consult nutrition and try to do that. That was a bet Harry wanted to make. And I was like, dude, I will back your bets. Let me see if I can get in, you know, a thousand people into making a commitment for an entire year. Which in today's world with dating apps, I don't think people are very committal anymore. That's a belief, John. Yeah, We're trying I, to eliminate. I, you know, if, <laughs> if, if, if we were going to be, you and I were going to go out, the three of us, and we we're going to talk about like how do you execute a golf shot? It would be about perceiving the environment, making a decision, right? And so that's kind of we're getting back into your 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 make a bet story here. Make a decision, commit to your intention execute an action and then evaluate, you know, and, and to me, it's like, if, if you have a process like that, you know, we go back to your NFL story. Um, you know, to me, it, it was, you know, lacking that hundred percent commitment to your intention. And, you know, if, if people want to change their life, right. They, they want to be able to see themselves in a completely different light then what they have to do is they have to commit to that intention, you know, and if, if that means paying for a year up front, I, I think that's a great bet. And the reason why I think that's a great bet is when people buy something and even if that thing is an expensive thing, which, which I don't know what the cost is, but like, even if it is the likelihood that they follow through goes up significantly, you know? So I think if, if people are making a bet on their health, and I, I can't think of a better bet for somebody to make, right? That's just my two cents. Uh, my, my older brother made a great point to me, and I'm sure he stole it from somebody because he's a hack. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he made a point. He said, in business, you got two choices. You can be the chicken or the pig. The chicken contributes to breakfast. The pig was committed. And he said, you know what? If you're going to do something like commit, be a pig, go all in on breakfast. And I, it just it's a funny analogy that he would always bring up. And I, I since have looked it up. I know he stole it from somebody, but... Uh, it's it's a pretty interesting observation when you start looking at people in terms of like what we do in terms of like, you know, coaching, online programming, block one here, there. I mean, certain people decide their level of commitment. Like I look at our block one coaches, they're like pigs. I mean, they committed to breakfast. They're all in. Uh, you know, this is how they embody themselves. And there's other people that are like, I just want to do a seven day free trial. Put my toe in the water. They're a chicken. You know, they're just getting an egg in there. Like commit to something, do something. And I think all too often People are nervous about committing because there's always this fear of what if I'm committing to something that's not the best? And I think like, like this is um, this is kind of an interesting kind of observation where uh, I remember years ago, 
you know, when my wife and I were first married, uh, it was actually at one of the the symposiums. Who was that dude who asked me? Uh, we were sitting at our house and was like, hey, how did you know your wife was the one? And he was like telling me he was having all this inner turmoil in this. And I was like, dude, you think too much. No names. Uh, yeah, no, no names. But I think all too often people overthink everything. I'm like, dude, make a decision, run 100 miles an hour as fast as you can. And if you meet some form of like embankment or a mountain, make a turn. But don't go out there being like, well, I'm not going to go that direction. There could be, a, a, you know, something to encounter. Like uh, it's the same reason when we go out looking for lunch. Get in the car. I'm going to drive as fast as I can and tell you to tell me to make a U-turn. Right. And uh, John and I, we were having this conversation with our good pal, Jim Davis. Jason, I'd love to get your take. Uh, I coach high school lacrosse and one of our individuals following uh, a weekend competition, body language down on themselves. So I went up and was chatting to him and uh, father came over and opened up a, a further conversation. But the challenge was like this individual was committed. He was the, the, the pig in this analogy and was so mad that the his teammates around him, like this was just a game. This was just for fun. And so his internal struggle was that he cared too much or cares because it's still going on. And, yeah. and part of our conversation with our, our good friend, Coach Jim, essentially was communicating to this kid like, stay the course. Yeah. Like th- those individuals, as you progress through your career, yeah. they're going to fizzle themselves out. So like – Jason, in this scenario, what would you give to uh, the advice to the kid? Because those around him, I mean, this is lower level, but he, yeah, but these he kids sees are a bigger. Like, but, but I mean, these kids are what, 14, 15, 16 years old? Yeah, but like they are, they're acting, we feel after our conversation, that they were acting like they didn't care because they were unsuccessful. Like, Jason, how yeah. would you talk to the, the kid who cared and like was taking well, losses well, personally? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have uh, this this idea of, of the things that are in your control. You know, let's focus on that. The things that are out of your control, they're out of your control, right? So, so let them go, you know? So, you know, don't put your success in a bucket, you know, especially early on uh, where you're going to get too consumed with what other people are doing. Because, you know, that's just the life lesson that you're going to have to learn sooner or later. Right. So, you know, focus on what's in your control. Take care of the things that are in your control, the things that are out of your control. Cut them loose as quick as you can because they're just wasted energy. You know, I, I look at everything in in, you know, how much energy do you have a day? Where where are you spending that energy? You know, is it a productive use of that energy? And, you know, social media, all that stuff that we were talking about earlier, you know, worrying about what your teammates are not doing, are doing, whatever, like, you know, take care of you. You know what it is that you have to do. You take care of your performance. People are going to notice and you're going to be successful. You know what what the other kids are, are doing or not doing. That's out of your control. So don't don't focus on that. Focus on the stuff that you need to do to take care of you. I also think too, you're dealing with kids, uh, like ideally as you age, you should start to understand who you are more. Like that's something that I always thought about. Like, like the person I am today, uh, is dramatically different than I was in my twenties and before. And I think as you, as you age and trials and tribulations and wins and losses and failures and whatnot, uh, you start kind of crafting more 
like a, a, a narrative of who you are. And like, you know, like he was talking about, um, you know, like sitting down and actually doing the work of like, who am I? What do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? Like at 40 something, it's dramatically easier for do that to do that than when you're 13 or 14 or 15. You know, you're probably just thinking like, dude, I just don't want to go to school and get a, you know, pants or a wedgie. Uh, which I don't think they do anymore, but like that was, I was a freshman in high school. And I was like, Oh God, I hope I don't get a wedgie today from the older guys. Nerd. Like, yeah, total nerd. So like, those are the things that are worried about. And I think that there's like this feeling or perception of trying to be cool. And that was what I said to Jim. I'm like, these kids have this interesting perception of like, ah, you know, if I act like nothing, I don't care about anything. I'm, I'm kind of fit within this cool thing. And, um, as an adult, you're like, no, you want to care. That's how people are successful. And at the end of the day, when people asked me, they were like, oh, you know, how are you successful playing in the NFL? I'm like, ah, like I cared from the time I, you know, to lift weights and to train. It was always important to me. And that never changed. There was never a point where I was like, oh, I'm too cool to do this. Like, uh, you know, it was always important. And so I think what happens when guys are like that, they either change their mindset or they just fizzle out and you're not around them. Eventually you play yourself to a level where everybody gives a shit. And like, that's a really interesting feeling because I, when I went to college, I was around, you know, let's say we had 80 guys on our team. There was probably 30 or 40 that really cared. There was probably 30 or 40 that didn't really care because they'd already had a scholarship. And uh, like there's, you know, and then all of a sudden you get to the NFL and, you know, there's 52 dudes on the team and there's probably 50 guys that fucking would love to kill to be there. And there's probably two guys that are just like, eh, you know, and then they get rid of those guys eventually. So or they get rid of themselves or they get rid of themselves by taking off their jersey and acting <laughs> like a legit crazy person. Uh, the uh, and it's, um, you know, I think what we we agreed on co- talking with uh, with Jim was the fact that that kid just has to stay the course and realize that those are, you know, like um, and this is a terrible analogy, but they're like barnacles on a ship. Like uh, like ships go out into sea and they you know they travel and they go back and forth and ports and here and whatever barnacles happen and like those barnacles eventually get scraped off and it's like that's just the uh, the cost of doing business you're going to run into people like that and you know what though they they don't stick around very well and they kind of play themselves out yeah I agree uh, a couple more questions for you Jason first off are you a happy Gilmore fan or do you feel that it disgraces the game. <laughs> no, I love the movie. I think it's a. I think it's a great movie. You know, I'm. I would say that if uh, I had a, a, I mean, I lean to that more than I lean to the the person who's trying to have a perfect golf swing. So I, I would be in the camp of, you know, go out, have fun, uh, enjoy yourself, and don't take yourself too seriously. So what about Caddyshack? Are you That's more like, uh, are, are you more like uh, 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 Chevy Chase's character? Or are you more like Ted Knight? Would you like to think yeah, about? Yeah, I would say I would say yeah, Chevy Chase all the way. There's there's no doubt in my mind. Like I I would so, say that the people, you know, uh, so so why is it that I get so wrapped up in instruction of doing something that I like you said overanalyze it to the nth degree. Um, you know, to me, I think there has to be a happy, uh, you know, median there where, uh, do your technical work, but when you're on the field, you play the game. I mean, there, there, there has to be like an inch, like, um, uh, so like my, uh, 
my daughters uh, are pretty competitive. Like my one daughter's a real good. Like uh, we we live in we live here in Texas. If you didn't know, and um, next door there's a horse riding school. And so my daughter, my one daughter, rides and jumps horses and does hunter jumper stuff. And she's actually really pretty good. And she puts a ton of work into it. My other daughter swims and plays basketball and does some other sports. And like sitting there and having conversations with my daughter about the idea of like practice and doing enough work so that when you get a chance to go play, you have confidence in your skills. Like, Hey, have we worked on this jump shot a thousand times to where all of a sudden now you get to practice, somebody bounce, you know, bounces you the ball, you catch it and you pull up and you shoot that jump shot. And it's familiar because this is a spot in which you've done. And so the idea of like being, you know, practice and, uh, you know, going through it and like, you know, even when we go out and we shoot, out, um, uh, we have, a, you know, I put up a court in our basket or in our driveway and like there's different spots. I'll set up cones and I'm like, hey, uh, I want you to run to this one. I'm going to pass you the ball and you just set up and we'll just kind of work these positions. And so I took her to basketball practice last night and she was literally bricking every shot from every point that we've worked on. And and I could see that she was like down on herself and she came over and she's like, I, I, I missed every one. And I'm like, you know what? Everybody, you know, like everybody has misses. Like it's not a big deal, but it's not going to change the process. Like, it's not as if we're not going to, we're not going to not do this or we're going to find different drills, whatever. I'm like, the basics are the basics. And, you know, at some point we will do enough work to where you have the confidence to make that shot. And I was like, and I've seen you make it a hundred times. What was it different about today? And she's like, uh, I didn't have my basketball shorts. So she couldn't find her laundry. So she was wearing school shorts. She was like, I didn't have my basketball clothes. I didn't feel like I was in basketball mode. And I'm like, so you need basketball clothes. All right, so so your shoes were laced up. You didn't have the right shorts. So now we have to take this process a step further. And I'm like, okay, so before we go to basketball, an hour before, we got to lay out your clothes, make sure that you have your shoes, put your basketball together. She didn't bring her basketball, which is always like my rule. Like whatever sport it is, you have to bring your ball. And, uh, and she's like, well, why? They always have balls. I'm like, what if they don't? What if you want to shoot after? What if you want to shoot before? What if somebody forgets? You always bring your ball. And um, like helping her develop this process and like when she goes to swim, I'm like, is everything, do you have your goggles? Do you have your, you know, this and making sure she has everything. So when she gets there, she can feel like, uh, like the process. Cause she can't overcome adversity. Like, oh, I forgot my goggles. So that was like a huge one where we, we got to swim for a swim meet and she had forgotten her goggles. So we got her a bag and everything has its place. And, uh, as I'm going through all of these things, like not, myself, but now as a parent trying to coach my kids, not in terms of their sport, but like all the little things in terms of preparation. It's really interesting to see how quickly adversity crumbles people when they're relatively new in this deal. Like I was thinking about, about those kids who didn't care is the reason they don't care was because they faced adversity early and somebody hadn't taught them the skills on how to overcome adversity or did they not have success early? Because I, I also found this, that if kids, and I, I saw this with my daughter's um, my one daughter, as soon as she started writing was really just had like some natural talent for it. My other daughter didn't, and she didn't really like it as much. The first time she got in the water, she swam. Okay. We came away from it. And when she went back and was, had a really good, uh, um, stroke and she's like, dad, I, it's, it's really a lot of fun. I feel like I'm good at this. And so that was something that was fascinating to me where, uh, you know, now people are kind of choosing sports based upon like, Hey, I feel pretty good with this, or this feels easy to me. I like this. Whereas I sucked at football. Like I wasn't very good at it. I just knew I got to beat people up and that was all I wanted to do. But I knew as I worked and continued to play, I got better. But I wondered if uh, the first day I went to go play football, if I hadn't 
had that mindset if I would have even continued to play. Two notes on that. If you had, let's say you weren't that good at said sport, but you had a supportive coach that then helped guide you versus you just accepting a brick or a poor performance as you, your identity. No, I, I had unsupportive coaches who were dicks. Exactly. So I know about myself that I like to succeed in spite of people. So give me a bad coach who tells me I suck and I'm going to go out and work hard just to try to fucking spite that guy so I can go find him 40 years later and kick his ass. Which we got yeah. some people to hunt down. <laughs> Glad I called that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, uh, what was it? in Billy uh, Madison. Billy Madison. <laughs> um, well, in now... Sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say that's the exception to the rule, right? So you would, you would put yourself in the camp of... I think most youth athletes need the support from, from the coaches. I would say there's, you know, probably a very small group of athletes that are out there that are going to succeed regardless of, of a support system. But I would, you know, I would, I would say most youth athletes that, that I come in contact with, if, if they were to, to have some unwanted outcome right away, uh, I don't know, you know, if it's just society now, but uh, there's no way that they would continue. And I think that's, that's really scary for sports. Yeah. You know, as a society, I think we need sports. Oh yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I do. Uh, and coaches. You know what? It's funny. Uh, Jason Whitlock, who, um, uh, who was one of the sports writers in Kansas city. Um, he's since kind of been shunned by the traditional media because he's extremely outspoken. He's always been a, um, we, we've had him on the podcast. He's always been a really prickly dude, but I really appreciate his perception and the way he analyzes stuff. And his column today was, uh, you know, after the Antonio Brown thing, like our professional sports really helping us. Uh, you know, we, we used professional athletes as these, you know, storybook characters to look up to. And they were in these incredible role models and he went through and he talked about, you know, um, uh, you know, Antonio Brown. And uh, he talked about uh, LeBron James and just some of the stuff where it's like, you know, you have these guys who are, you know, so quick to or like the Colin Kaepernick's who are, you know, trying to, you know, paint this deal. But yet he's taking money from Nike, who's getting shoes made by, you know, uh, you know, communist China that's in, you know using it you know for slavery. You know, like the it's really pretty interesting that like, you know, he wants to point, but yet the money he's taking from Nike is funded by some of the worst human rights violators on the planet. And so he's, he, he'll really point out the the two face kind of, uh, you know, disingenuous narrative of a lot of this. But his column was like, has professional sports really melted down into these, uh, you know, these characters that, you know, maybe aren't as positive as we thought, like is professional sports really helping society? And uh, for me, reading it, I, like, I, you know, I just go back to like watching NFL films. I mean, uh, you know, I, I used to love, and I'm sure you've, you've seen it too, where it's like, it's a cold day at Lambeau Field. And they talk about the leap and like the storybook or, you know, like the Nolan Ryan, you know, pitching the, you know, the no hitters. I mean, like the, the interest in terms of like weaving or weaving um, heroic moments in sports into the fabric of America is really, I think, what has made sport great. And it feels like sad to me that somebody would even write a column that our professional sports hurting society uh, because of the individuals. Has social media put such a spotlight on these individuals that now they feel obligated to comment on everything? Whereas before, I don't really care what LeBron James 
you know, uh, his social stance on anything is. I don't care about his political nothing. Like, I want to go out and watch him play at a high level. I want to go out and watch Steph Curry, who. Oh, I thought you were going to say Space Jam too, and I was like, no, 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 no. He should have never done that. <laughs> but uh, but if if you look like uh, like Steph Curry doesn't put himself as a social justice warrior, and like you know like I want to go out and I want to watch professional athletes, but I think there's like a feeling now, and and uh, you know even Kareem uh, Abdul Jabbar, who I've always been a huge fan of, you know he's really taken that mantle and like I think put a lot on these guys that like you have the ability because of your station in life to be able to make a change. And um, I don't know if it's necessarily a positive place to be. Well, Kareem's college coach. Yeah, wouldn't. Great teacher. And uh, yeah, and I've always liked Kareem. I mean, I uh, dude, I am always a fan other than the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting piece. But I think, like you said, uh, people need sports. They need heroes. Um, you know, like I, I, you know, I enjoy like um, uh, like I like the Ryder Cup in golf. Like I like the teams. I like I like the team aspect of it. And to me, that's always like one of the most fun. Like I do wa- enjoy watching golf on TV if it's the Ryder Cup or where I can see like, you know, the best in the world play the best because it doesn't matter what the sport is. I want to see the best in the world play on the biggest stage and have the greatest moments and, you know, see what's best in, in you know, in humanity in that way. Mm-hmm. So if you look at youth sports, I mean, how – What's the percentage of, of youth athletes that go on to play sports, you know, professionally? It's it's so minute, right? But the lessons learned are the part that I think our society can't live without, right? So, you know, soccer, football, basketball, baseball, tennis, like doesn't matter what the sport is, the the youth athlete is learning how to deal with adversity and learning how to deal with failure. And I think in understanding the concept of, you know, teamwork or an individual sports, you know, the discipline and all the things that go along with having to be self-motivated, you know, to me, those are the things that our society, I don't think can survive without. So, you know, to me, it's easy for me to, to see this really small percentage of professional athletes that get all this negative publicity and, and just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, okay, well, that's just going to happen, you know, with any large sample group, you're going to have, you know, both sides of the spectrum represented, but overall sports in total uh, are, are doing this amazing thing for our society. So I, you know, I can't imagine my life without, without sports growing up. All right. Final question, Jason, in line with happy Gilmore and Chubbs Peterson, Who's your favorite fictional coach of all time? Fictional coach of all time. Wow. I don't I don't I don't have a good answer for you. Fictional coach. Um what is it in uh, a wonderful life? What's the name of the angel? That shows them the past oh, and, and uh, present. Wow. Uh, Clarence. Clarence, the angel that gets his wings when the bell rings. That's what I'm going to go with. Oh, how about that? Wow, a wonderful life with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. Yep, yeah. But I, I was going to say Jimmy Stewart, and I'm like, isn't that a race car driver too? Yeah, uh, it is. I'm going, uh, and, and we, we've had this discussion I before. I know. Any given Sunday. Any given Sunday, Al Pacino? Yeah, yeah Al Pacino, any given Sunday. It's a game about inches. They're everywhere. 
That's a good one. I mean, the uh, I'm on the yeah. He he's he's a mess. I love it. He is a mess. Chubbs certainly is. But then, um, man, who's Tom Cruise's coach in Days of Thunder? Oh, With, uh, uh, Robert Duvall playing. Um, oh God! Well, I know it's Robert Duvall. Yeah. I just can't remember the name. The Magic name. Wheels. That's uh oh. Uh, that's a mind trickery. Well, I appreciate. It, it, it was Rowdy Burns, Cole Trickle, and Harry Hogg. Harry Hogg? Yeah, Harry Hogg. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chubbs is easily my go-to. The But uh, <laughs> Harry Hogg also. Uh, uh, you know who I also did like? I did like uh, Gene Hackman and Hoosiers. Yeah. Like the fact that like he, he like makes those kids, uh, you know, like teaches them the basics. And like I, I thought that was another good, great movie. Yeah, holding them to high expectation, whether they had that pro. He well, didn't suck up to that one. Well, the and, and my favorite one is when he brings them out there, and the kids are all nervous, and he goes out and he has them measure the the height oh, of the man. of the rim, and he's like, "What does it say?" He's like, 10 feet." Dude, he's, he's like, great. "He's like, isn't that what we play on?" And uh, yeah. like that was like uh, like that moment. Uh, I don't know if that was true or where they got that from, but whoever wrote that, like that was, I still remember that, and like think about that, like um, as we would run out there and. Uh, you know, like you go play in all these different stadiums and here and there. And I always remember thinking like it's a hundred yards. It's a hundred yards. Everything's it's 53 yards, sideline to sideline. It's a hundred yards. And that moment from Hoosiers. Yeah. Great, great movie. One of my favorite sports movies. I don't know if you guys remember the cycling movie breaking away. Oh yes. About the two brothers. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> No, it was uh, the, the kid who falls in love with the girl from Italy. And so he decides that he wants to be this Italian cyclist. Oh, so I think I know this one. It's about, it's about these guys that grow up in this, this small poor town and they have a rock quarry. It, isn't there two of them? I thought they were brothers. But like there's one guy who was like, was it like his buddy who was like kind of pushed him and the one guy was more yeah. gifted? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great it's a and and well and then I'll, I'll I'll say there's one other movie that I think is even is uh, what's the wrestling movie Vision Quest. Ah, oh, there you go. We, yeah, that's this, my, uh, my favorite sports movie. Uh, it's yeah, it's one of ours. So much so that we had Matthew Modine on the podcast. Uh huh. To talk, dude, that was so yeah. awesome. And and it, the funny part is, he's like, "Hey, I'm out in L.A. I only got a few minutes." So we get him on, and like we like, I I think he was surprised one that we had all seen Vision Quest as many times, but then he also got into the fact that he was in um, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Full Metal Jacket, which uh huh, like. Completely blows my mind. But he, Jason, I'm going to send you the podcast. It's very good. And he goes into like the, the backstory, the book, and then the expectations of the character and like what he was going after. Uh, in line with Vision Quest, Vision Quest is my favorite like pregame speech when he says he's not going to the match and he goes and visits. Yeah. The, uh, his cook. The, the cook. The cook comes and he's up. getting dressed up and shaved and he gives him like the, the Pele talk. Yeah. That was chilling in terms of fiction. Like, um, Best pregame, right. I'm going Miracle. Um, Kurt Russell, of course, but ah, oh, man. I mean, think about how many great sports movies there are. And the problem is, if you don't have sports, how are you going to have great sports movies? You got to have great moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the under every essence, I mean, the theme of a good sports movie is an underdog. Yeah. Like, uh, I did, haven't seen it yet, but Kurt Warner, they came out with a bio movie about Kurt Warner, the best undrafted. Uh, 
QB of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but um, I will. Dick Vermeil. Yeah. Uh, you know, untouchable with Dick Vermeil. Or, yeah, Dick yeah. Vermeil has been portrayed in a lot of movies. Uh, well, when we were in, um, so it was Greg Kennard who played Dick Vermeil. So when they were prepping in, for Invincible. that movie, Invincible, mm-hmm. he came and hung out and introduced us. And they're like, Dick Vermeil's like, they're making a movie about me. And we're like, <laughs> you know, and then the funny part was, you know, because I played in Philly, I knew Vince Papali. And like he was like a crowd favorite. Like whenever we went to autograph signings or everything, he'd always show up and he was always a gregarious, like very cool cat. And, uh, um, I, uh, I like, I never got a chance to talk to him after the movie. Um, uh, but you know, Hey, I mean, you get, you know, Marky Mark to play you and you get Greg Kinnear to play Dick Vermeil. And, uh, that time in Philly was pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome movie too. Uh, is there any golf movie where you're like, man, this is great too. Are you a tin cup fan? You know, I like tin cup as a movie. I mean, I wouldn't say that, that necessarily, um, there's a golf movie that, that does it for me. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Yeah, I like, I mean, in Caddyshack, like all of them, I think they're, you know, they're great movies, but that it, it's, uh, it's not like Vision Quest or, you know, some of those other movies like you. you know, what about Kevin Costner you- in, uh, in, in For the Love of the Game? Uh, so I loved Kevin Costner in um, Field of Dreams. And like, Will Durham. Uh, Field of Dreams to me is still one of my favorite, favorite movies. Uh, just the fact that like, you know, Terrence Mann and that whole thing of finding his dad and all that, like incredible movie. And then they, you know, obviously goes and plays Bull Durham or, or does Bull Durham, but then comes out with that uh, for the love of the game, uh-huh. which is like the aging pitcher, which I think was probably like the Nolan Ryan story, really, you know? Yeah. And, I, I don't know if it was, wasn't, but it, it's a, uh, it's a great movie. Uh, what was that million dollar arm? Did you guys see that movie? I did. John Hamm, yeah. You guys, so so the coach that's in that suit is actually Tom Howe. Oh, so, right. so it's a story based on Tom having this uh, this agent come to him and say, "I have this idea. We're going to take two kids from India that have never played baseball. You think you could coach them?" to to get signed by a major league team and and he does it in 10 months were they cricket so players a, yeah 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 they were obviously cricket players yeah yeah have, yeah. Uh, so, I, I, uh, have you ever watched a cricket game uh yes. for more oh, than a minute no my god first of all they go on for days um i watched I can't remember. This was years ago. Like, uh, you know, on, it was like on the Ocho, like you know, ESPN <laughs> eight. But like I clicked on one day and um, there was like a hundred thousand people at the game somewhere in India. I mean, the like the the field is enormous. Like I, I was like, I don't even know what the hell was going on. I mean, dude, like the guy like hit the ball and was like running back and forth between this pin. Like it was unbelievable to watch. And I just couldn't imagine like, dude, you got to like look at it. Like there were hundreds of thousands of spectators. I mean, I'm like, is is that like everywhere you go into India, there's just so many people that it's like, oh, there's guys playing pickup soccer. There's a hundred thousand people watching. Like it was enormous. Well, you just brought up the Ocho, another fictional coach from Dodgeball. God, that's Patches O'Houlihan. Uh the uh the best part of that whole movie <laughs> is Lance Armstrong when he's like, oh, he's like <laughs> When, you know, after I almost died from cancer for the third time and I finally climbed back on the bike. But I'm sure it's something that's really meaningful to you. <laughs> yeah. And Chuck Norris. That was good. Yeah. Oh, God. That, that is a good. I've heard of this guy named Don Bradman. 
So you brought up cricket. So so Don Bradman was this this batter from Australia that that might be the greatest athlete ever in the history of sports. Wow. In the sense that he only struck out once in his career and it was his last at bat. So like a Hall of Fame career in cricket would be like 55, 60% batting average. His batting average was 99.7 something because he he had his, the last at bat was the only time he ever struck out in his career. It's amazing. Yeah, you guys should look him up. And he had to end his career on his biggest failure. He probably just fucking <laughs> broke a thing and walked off and said, fuck this, I'm done. But there, there's a there's a similar wrestling story where a dude went undefeated and then lost his final match. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the Russian. Um, God, what is that? Um, that was in the Olympics. I thought, I thought it was the guy an that American. Was... Gable? No, I'm. I think it's Gable. No, no, yeah, I don't right. know. Lost his final college match. Maybe I forget, man. There's some story like that. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing it up and then leaving us hanging with. I don't have my cheating. Oh, that's Google right. You don't have your yeah. Where, where's your laptop? Too cold in here for aiming to uh, to connect yeah, to connect uh. versus being lost and fact checking you over there, John. <laughs> I'm like check that check that right now. Um, but yeah, J- Jason, the uh, take charge of your take charge of you. So what? Where can people find it? And where can people learn more? And you got an awesome thing going with the kids and the and your mission with mustard which is an awesome name for uh, teaching kids to throw, put some mustard on it. Oh, okay. Where can people go to learn more about your initiative? I thought you just like hot dogs. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting, but that's, that was one of the, the reasons behind naming the tech company mustard. So, so we, we started with baseball throwing, eventually we'll do, we'll do all sports. And, and the idea is to give parents access to elite level coaching, you know, from, from their device. Uh, as far as take charge of you, you can go to take charge of you.com. You can pre-order the book. You know, our idea is to, to, to start this revolution of, of self-coaching to empower people to uh, achieve things that, that they didn't think was, you know, was possible by coaching themselves. And, uh, and that's really every day. That's what I get up, right. I get up and I, and I get to coach, you know, youth athletes and executives and professional athletes. And, and hopefully this book imparts some of this knowledge and helps some people figure out a way to, to achieve some things that they didn't think were possible. Excellent. Well, cool. No doubt. Well, thanks for joining us on power athlete radio. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. That was, that was great. Thanks guys. And, and hopefully we have a bunch of power athletes out there, uh, you know, seeing themselves in different ways. Uh, and, you know, like you said, being the pig, getting committed. Yeah. No, we'll, that's we'll, what it's all about. Yeah. We'll keep beating on them and uh, hopefully we can get them over there. So thanks for tuning in. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find coach Jason Goldsmith on Instagram at coach Jason gold until next time. Bye! Drop on, drop on.